I enjoy going to the movie theater. I like the big screen, the popcorn, the candy, the Cokes, and the cushy seats. I probably look forward more than anything else to the sneak previews before the feature presentation. I like to watch movie trailers. If a movie, movie trailer is good in two and a half minutes, it can arrest your attention and capture your curiosity. It gives you a glimpse of what's to come. And you make a quick decision on whether or not you want to watch that movie later when it's released. Hollywood is not the only place that knows something about a sneak preview. Sportscasters know something about a sneak preview. ESPN is a master at this. The announcer comes on and sets the stage for the big ball game. He talks about the two teams that are about to wage war in the epic battle, speaks of the representative superstars on both the teams, talk about how it's going to be a game of the century, and you as the watcher, you think to yourself, I've got to tune in and watch every single play. If I miss this game, I'm nothing more than an idiot. I've got to watch this because if a sneak preview is good, it arrests your attention. It captures your curiosity. Even the six o'clock news has gotten pretty good at sneak previews. The anchor talks about the latest breaking news and says that at the end of the broadcast, there's going to be the big story. And you as the watcher, you even make your way through all the commercials just to get to the end story. Because there's something inside of all of us that likes a good sneak preview. We like to know what's down the road. We like to catch a glimpse of what's to come. This morning, I want to give you a sneak peek. This morning, I want to give you a preview of Calvary, a glimpse of glory. Many of you realize that since December, we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke. And today, we continue our sermon series entitled Blessed Assurance, a study in the Gospel of Luke. In a very timely way, we come to Luke chapter 9. I'll go ahead and tell you up front, it's not your average Easter sermon. But yet, it gives us a glimpse of glory of what's to come, and I think it gives us a better understanding of what took place on that glorious Easter Sunday. So I invite you this morning to take your Bible. Turn to Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 9, we'll begin at verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. His clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw, how they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. 
he did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and to the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Our story begins with this statement. Eight days after Jesus had said this, he took Peter, James, and John with him, went up on a mountain to pray. When you hear that opening line, it begs the question, what did Jesus say eight days earlier? The answer to that is given in the preceding passage. It is there that we discover that Jesus and the disciples were in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus asked them the question, who do people say that I am? They said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Still others say you're one of the prophets reincarnated. And Jesus said, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? It was Peter, the ringleader of the group, who spoke up and said, you are the Christ of God. My friend, this is a pivotal statement in Luke's gospel. When he declares you are the Christ of God, it is the answer to the question that's been posed repeatedly all throughout the gospel. Everybody has been asking the question, who is this? The crowd asked the question. The Pharisees asked the question. The disciples asked the question, who is this man named Jesus? And it's Jesus who asked the question to his disciples, and they respond, and Peter speaks up and says, you are the Christ of God. This is the Mason-Dixon line of Scripture. It is the line in the sand. It is the dividing mark between believers and unbelievers, between sheep and goats, between children of the light versus children of darkness, between wheat and weeds, between people who praise the Lord versus people who persecute the Lord. Because either Jesus is Christ or he's a con. Either he is for real or he's fake. Either he's the holy one or he is a hoax. This declaration found on the lips of Peter, it is the line in the sand. It's the Mason-Dixon line. It divides all of humanity, all people throughout all the ages. Either you believe he's Christ or you don't. Who is Jesus? This is a pivotal statement. And it's, the answer is found on the lips of Peter. And Peter says, you are the Christ. The greatest theological statement you can make is a two-word phrase. Jesus Christ the greatest theological statement you can make it's the deepest most profound statement you can make Jesus Christ now there may be some of us who think the word Christ is like the last name of Jesus first name Jesus last name Christ as if somehow he was born to Mr. and Mrs. Christ that if if you want the phone number of Jesus all you have to do is look it up in the directory under the C's and you'll find Casey and Chandler and Christ and Clark and Crawford, and he's just right there listed for us. But Christ is not the last name of Jesus. Christ is his title. It tells us who he is. He is Christ, which means he is the long-awaited Messiah. 
He is the anointed one. He is the sovereign savior of the universe. He's not only the savior of the cosmos, but he wants to be the savior of your life and mine. He is Jesus Christ. And this is the declaration that Peter makes. You are Christ. Jesus says after that, the one that you call Christ will suffer many things. He will be handed over to the religious rulers. They will kill him and he'll be raised from the dead on the third day. Anyone who comes after me, Jesus says, must take up his cross daily and follow me. If you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. For what good is it to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your very soul? If you're ashamed of me before men, then I will be ashamed of you before my Father in heaven. And then Jesus says, some of you standing here will not taste death before you see the kingdom of God. After Peter made this confession, after Jesus gave these instructions on discipleship, eight days after this, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain to pray. Eight days after that bold declaration, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, if I am Christ, then you've got to follow me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You've got to make much of me. You've got to follow hard after me. You've got to take up your cross and follow me daily. After this great conversation and after this declaration that Jesus says, some of you will see a glimpse of glory. Some of you will see the kingdom of God coming in all of its power. Eight days after this, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain to pray. Luke does not give us the exact location of the mountain, but you've got a sneaking suspicion that something good is about to happen. Because you know that God does some of his best work on top of a mountain. You'll remember Moses. He was tending his father-in-law's sheep on the backside of Mount Horeb. And there, he saw a bush that was on fire, but not being consumed. And Moses went over, and the voice of God spoke to him, saying, you go down to Egypt and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Eventually, Moses obeyed. He went down and successfully liberated the children of Israel from their Egyptian bondage. And years later, they came back to that very same mountain range, and Moses went up on Mount Sinai. And there, he was given the very Ten Commandments of God. Now, this was unparalleled in human history. There had been no other deity who had ever told the people, this is who I am and this is what I expect from you. But God, Yahweh, the one true Lord of the universe, said to Moses, Moses, I want my people to know who I am and I want them to know what I expect of them. So you come and meet with me on this mountain and with the finger of God, he inscribed on two tablets of stone what you and I call the Ten Commandments. Oh, yes, my friend, God does some of his greatest work on top of a mountain. It was on Mount Carmel where years later Elijah stood on behalf of the Lord. And God, through Elijah, defeated 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, proving once and for all that God is the only God of the universe. And then who can forget that in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus chose a mountain to go deliver the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher ever lived. And on that mountain, he gave what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And then, of course, as we think about Easter, 
We realize that on that faithful Friday when Jesus stumbled and staggered outside the streets of Jerusalem with the cross beam attached to his back, he was beaten beyond all human recognition. He was bruised. He was crushed for us. And as he made his way out, he went up that skull-shaped hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And there he was crucified on Mount Calvary. And on that mountain, God secured the salvation for all who will believe. Oh yes, God does some of his greatest work on top of a mountain. So in Luke chapter 9, when you read that Jesus, Peter, James, and John go up on a mountain, you've got a sneaking suspicion something good is about to happen. And then you hear that they go up on this mountain to pray. Have you discovered that prayer seems to pepper nearly every page of Luke's gospel? And anytime there's prayer, it always precedes something of great importance. That's true in the gospel of Luke. It's true in your life as well. You want something great to happen? Get on your knees. Because prayer always precedes something of importance. In Luke chapter 1, it is... The priest Zechariah who prays. He prays with his barren wife Elizabeth, please Lord, let us have a child. Please Lord, let us have a child. And while Zechariah is ministering in the temple, it's the angel of God who appears and says, God has heard your prayers. And your wife is going to conceive, give birth to a bouncing baby boy. You're going to name him John. We know him better as John the Baptist. In Luke chapter 3, it is Jesus who is baptized. And Luke says that as he came up out of the water, he was praying. And as he was praying, the heavens ripped open and the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove. And from that, it thrust him into the desert, into ministry. Prayer always precedes great things of importance. In Luke chapter 5, we are told that Jesus goes to a solitary place to pray. And after that prayer meeting... He faces the Pharisees for the very first time in a battle of confrontation. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus goes and he prays all night long. After that eight-hour prayer vigil, he comes and calls his 12 disciples. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus is praying. His disciples come up to him and they say, Lord, teach us to pray like you pray. And he gives us what we call the Lord's Prayer. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus is speaking on the importance of prayer, and he gives one of those great parables, those fancy, quirky little stories of how a woman is persistent in her plea, and the Lord says, I give you this story so that you know the importance of prayer so that you'll never give up on prayer. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus enters Jerusalem for the very last time. He makes straightway for the temple, and there he overturns all the money changers' tables. And he says to anyone who will listen, this is to be called a house of prayer, but you have transformed it into a den of robbers. And then probably the greatest prayer that ever, was ever prayed comes in Luke chapter 22. It's there where Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Luke, who is a doctor by trade, tells us that Jesus was under so much stress, under the weight of the world, as he thought about the cross of Calvary, that his sweat was like, drops of blood falling to the ground. And medically, this is very possible. For you to be under such stress, then instead of your sweat glands secreting sweat, it actually, blood comes through your sweat glands and falls to the ground. Jesus was stressed out, and he prayed. 
Father, let this cup pass from me. Is there any other way for us to save humanity apart from the cross that I must endure? Yet not my will, but your will be done. Let it be known that prayer is peppering every page of the gospel of Luke. And prayer always precedes something of great importance in the gospel and in your life. So you get to the opening line of our story, and you know something good is about to happen. Because Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, they go up on a mountain, and they pray. They're on a mountain, and they pray. They're on a mountain, and they pray. You're on the edge of your seat. You say, okay, Lord, what's about to happen? And as Jesus prays, his face changes. It lights up from the inside out. Light shines through his face, through his skin, through the fabric of his clothes so that Luke says that his clothing was as bright as a flash of lightning. Another gospel writer says that it was as if the clothes had been bleached with the whitest white you could ever find on the planet. This, this illumination, this transfiguration, it starts on the inside of Christ and it works its way out so that everybody can see. What exactly happened on that mountain of transfiguration? I don't know. I don't know how this works. I don't know how this happened. I do like what William Lane says. William Lane says that in this moment, God lifted the veil of the humanity of Jesus so the disciples could get a sneak peek of his divine glory. I think that's exactly what happened. I think that in that moment, in that split second, in that sliver of time, that God lifted the veil of the humanity of Christ. So what shone through was inevitably the divine glory of God. Because you know and I know that Jesus is fully God and fully human. He's not a 50-50 split. He's 100% divine and 100% human. And if you lift, even for a millisecond, some of the humanity of Christ, what inevitably shines through is the divine, eternal, majestic splendor of God, our Savior. And so in this moment, Jesus just let his hair down. In this moment, Jesus revealed his nature from eternity past. In this moment, the humanity of Jesus was lifted and the divine nature of Christ was shown through. And all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah showed up. On that mountain, Moses and Elijah, and you think to yourself, now wait a minute, Moses and Elijah lived hundreds of years before the coming of Christ. You're exactly right. Where did they come from? They came from heaven. That's exactly where they came from. These celestial visitors came to a terrestrial mountain to have a little talk with Jesus. You know they came from heaven because the text says so. Moses and Elijah appeared in their glorious splendor, in their heavenly adornment. They came from heaven. Moses, symbolic of the law. Elijah, symbolic of the prophets. They come because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And they come to talk about what Luke describes as his, being Jesus, departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. What's interesting to note is that word departure in Greek 
is the word exodon, exodus. They came to talk about the exodus. They came to talk about the great deliverance. Now, the greatest deliverance in all the Old Testament is the exodus story where God, through Moses, came and liberated the people of Israel from their Egyptian captivity. Went down to Pharaoh, said, let my people go. And Pharaoh was stubborn, and he did, and did not, and did, and not, and did. And eventually, he let them go. The greatest story of deliverance in the Old Testament is the story of the Exodus. But the greatest story of deliverance in all of human history, in all the Bible, bar none, is the deliverance that Jesus secures on the cross of Calvary for lost sinners like you and lost sinners like me. Jesus came to deliver us not from Pharaoh. Jesus came to deliver us not from Egyptian captivity. Jesus came to deliver us from the bondage of our sin and the shackles of our depravity. Jesus came to rescue us from death, the grave, and hell. Jesus came to deliver us. And Moses and Elijah appear on that mountain just to talk about the Exodon, just to talk about what Jesus was about to do because Jesus always knew that he came to seek and save the lost. And the only way that would be made possible is by going to and through the cross of Calvary. And so Jesus understands that he not only is the plan of salvation, but he's the man of salvation. Salvation cannot be accomplished apart from Jesus. They come, Moses and Elijah, to talk to Jesus about the Exodon. They don't come to give him any more instruction. They don't come to give him any more insight. They don't come to give him any halftime adjustments. They're just on the mountain talking to Jesus about what they've been talking to each other in heaven about. If you ever wonder, um, what are we going to talk about when we get to heaven? Well, what's the topic of conversation on those streets of gold? I can tell you from this story that Jesus is the subject matter and Calvary is the content. We are going to talk about Jesus and Calvary for all time, even for all of eternity. And even if you talk about Jesus and Calvary for all of eternity, that's not long enough for you to get down into the depths of who Jesus is and exhaust what happened at Calvary on your behalf and on mine. And you may think to yourself, but wait a minute, if we're going to spend all of eternity talking about Jesus and talking about Calvary, aren't we going to get bored? Absolutely not. You're not going to get bored because you can't exhaust Jesus. You can't get to the point where you say, I know enough about him. In fact, you can't make too much of Jesus whether you're walking this side or whether you're walking streets of gold because Jesus is is the Christ and he's in a class all by himself so they come and they talk about Jesus they talk about the Exodon and this is the subject matter that heaven's been talking about from eternity past to eternity future this has been on God's mind forever if you don't believe me all you have to do is look in the first book of the Bible and the last book of the Bible in Genesis as early as chapter 3 we find the necessity for the coming of Jesus into the world Sin is introduced into the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are willfully disobedient unto the Lord. God himself comes down and he disciplines Adam and Eve. But he curses the serpent. See the grace in that. God should have, could have cursed Adam and Eve. You and me. But instead of cursing us, he disciplines us. 
Yet when he spins on his heels and looks at the serpent, he curses the serpent. He says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That word enmity means hostility. There will forever be hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And God says that the seed of the serpent will strike the heel of the seed of the woman. But the seed of the woman will stomp on the head of the seed of the serpent and crush him. You may say, that sounds like a comic book. What is that? That's a description of what happened at Calvary. Because Jesus is the seed of the woman, and the devil is the seed of the serpent. And at Calvary, the devil thought he was victorious. He thought he had put Jesus to death once and for all. And certainly, Jesus died at Calvary, but really it was only just a nip of the heel. Satan just nipped him in the heel. But on the third day, Jesus rose with all power, victory, authority in his hands. And I think that one of the first things Jesus did when he came out of the tomb is he did a little two-step on Satan's head. He just stomped it in the ground. He just kind of got, you know, stomped it right there. And he said, listen, this once and for all is a fatal blow against the adversary. It's a fatal blow against the devil. Not only is the devil no longer powerful in our life, but the devil and his, and his, and his ability to cast us into hell and to keep us dead no longer exists. Why? Because the tomb is empty and the seed of the woman crushed the head of the seed of the serpent, both now and forevermore. All the Bible is about the gospel. The first book, Genesis, we find it right there, chapter 3, verse 15. We also find it in Revelation, the last book of the Bible. For when John sees Jesus in Revelation 13, 8, he describes him in this way. The Lamb of God who was slain before the very foundation of the world. Slain before the very foundation of the world. So in God's mind, before he spoke Genesis 1, 1, let there be light. Jesus was crucified. In the mind of God, Jesus was crucified. He was slain before the very foundation of the world. What that tells me is that from God's perspective, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is plan A and there ain't no plan B. There's no other way for a person to be saved. It is only through the accomplished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, in the grave, through the tomb. This is the only way that anybody goes from death unto life. Jesus is plan A and there is no plan B which is good because all we need is plan A. Plan A is quite sufficient. Moses and Elijah showed up. They're talking to Jesus about what they've been talking in heaven about. They're talking about the cross and Calvary. They're, they're talking about the glorious resurrection. They're talking about the exodon. And somehow, in this scintillating conversation, Peter, James, and John fell asleep. I do find some comfort from this. <laughs> because if jokers can fall asleep when you're talking about the gospel and you got Jesus and Moses and Elijah, if somebody drifts to sleep on a Sunday, I, I under, okay, I get it. Listen, I find some comfort from this, but somehow they woke up. Hallelujah. Somehow they woke up. 
And Peter started flapping his gums. Peter usually gets in trouble when he starts flapping his gums. And in this moment, he says, this is good for us to be here. This is awesome. Jesus, I'm so glad that you brought us up here. Well, I'm glad you brought me. And then you got James and John. But I'm so glad that we're up here. Let me build a shelter. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Luke says, Peter didn't know what he was saying. And as he's standing there, womp, 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 flapping his gums, a cloud envelops the mountain. And those guys are all afraid. And for only the second time in the Gospel of Luke, God speaks. The first time was at the baptism. Now here we are at the mountain of transfiguration. And God the Father speaks, this is my chosen son. Listen to him. This is my chosen son. Listen to him. Peter, this is my chosen son. Listen to him. James and John, this is my chosen son. Listen to him. Church at Pelham, this is my chosen son. Listen to him. After he spoke that, the cloud left, the dust settled. Moses and Elijah were gone. As quickly as they came, that's how fast they left. And Luke says that Jesus was alone with Peter, James, and John. I've oftentimes wondered, what's the problem with what Peter asked? What's the problem? I mean, what he wants to do is he wants to prolong the mountaintop experience. He's on the mountain. There's Jesus. There's Moses. There's Elijah. Woo-hoo! This is a pretty cool thing. Let's just make it a long thing. Let's prolong the mountaintop experience. Have you ever had a mountaintop experience that you wanted to prolong? Absolutely. Maybe it was a camp, a revival, uh, a worship service, something where God came in power. His spirit was so thick. You think to yourself, boy, I want to bottle this. I want to I last it, let it last forever. I want this to go on for a long time. All of us have had a mountaintop experience that we want to last for ever. And this is what Peter is talking about. And, and when he says, let me make a shelter for you, what he's saying is, uh, let me do for you what we do in the Feast of Tabernacles. When we celebrate the provision of God. So let me set up a booth or a tabernacle for Moses, symbolic of the provision of the law. For Elijah, symbolic of the gift of the prophets. And for Jesus, symbolic of the Savior of mankind. Let me set up three tabernacles. And let me celebrate who God is and what he's given. So once again, what's the big deal? What's so wrong about that? What did Peter know eight days earlier that somehow he now forgot a little more than a week later? I mean, he was affirmed that Jesus is Christ, and now the Lord seems to reprimand him. So what gives? What's the difference? Well, I think the difference is right there in the text. When Luke says that Jesus was alone, what he's saying is that Jesus is in a class all by himself. Peter's problem is that he was trying to put Moses and Elijah on par with Jesus. But there is no one, there is nothing that can rival the supremacy of Christ. 
There is no one, there is nothing that can usurp the sovereignty of the Savior. There is no one, there is nothing that can equal the majesty of Jesus. Jesus is in a class all by himself. He is alone and no one else can rival him. He is alone and no one else can equal him. He is alone for no one else is as majestic as him. He's in a class all by himself. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ in a class all by himself. That's who Jesus is. He is more faithful than Abraham. He's more priestly than Aaron. He's a better deliverer than Moses. He's more prophetic than Elijah. He is Christ. He's in a class all by himself. He is purer than King David. He is wiser than King Solomon. He's stronger than Samson. He's more patient than Job. He is Christ. He's in a class all by himself. He is more obedient than Jonah. He is more loving than Hosea. He's a better preacher than John the Baptist. He is more even-tempered than the apostle named Peter. He is Christ. He's in a class all by himself. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the King of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. He is Christ. He's in a class all by himself. He can help the helpless. He can give hope to the hopeless. He can comfort the afflicted. He can afflict the comfortable. He is Christ. He's in a class all by himself. Pilate could not stop him. The Pharisees could not destroy him. Death could not defeat him. The devil could not dethrone him. He is Christ. He's in a class all by himself. What we're given as a glimpse in Luke chapter 9, we see in fulfillment at the cross of Calvary. Because at the cross of Calvary, Jesus climbs another mountain. And there on that faithful Friday, when he's bruised and beaten for your sin and for mine, he goes and climbs the hill called Calvary. He stretches out his arms. He allows Roman soldiers to drive rusty nails through his wrist and his feet. And there Jesus rise in pain he says my God my God why have you forsaken me and for six hours on that faithful Friday Jesus dangled on the cross in three hours of that six hours there was darkness that covered the land from high noon to three o'clock there was darkness over the land but Jesus was giving the light of salvation to anyone who would believe eventually he said it is finished the wrath of God has been absorbed I have taken all the punishment that you deserve and I deserve. And Jesus declares, it is finished. And he gave his spirit unto the Father. He bowed his head, gave up his ghost. They took his body, placed it into a grave. And the rest of Friday, it looked like God said nothing. And on Saturday, it seemed that God did nothing. But early on Sunday morning, I said early on Sunday morning, Jesus rose with all power and victory in his hands. And Jesus is alive today. This Jesus that we worship, he is Christ. He's in a class all by himself. You can't make too much of him. You can't worship him too frequently. You can't speak about him too often. 
you can't give too much of your life under his authority because he's Christ. He's in a class all by himself. He died for you. He was placed in the grave that had your name on it. And on the third day, Jesus kicked the door wide open. And Jesus burst forth for you and for me. So that on this day, you and I can sing and shout and say, I serve a risen Savior. And he's in the world today. And I know that he is living, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy and I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and he talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Today could be the day of your salvation. Today could be the day that God reigns supreme in your life. Why? Because you accept the reality that Jesus is Christ and he's in a class all by himself. Amen. So we're going to give you the opportunity to respond. And maybe you're here and, and you've just thought of Jesus as good man. You've thought of Jesus as historical figure. You've thought of Jesus as a religious guy. You thought of Jesus as a good teacher. Today I want to tell you, he is so much more than all of that. Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Christ. He's in a class all by himself. And you have the opportunity today to give your life to him. How do you do that? We're going to sing a song. And if you want Jesus to be Christ of your life, then I want you, as soon as the first note is struck, so make your way down this aisle. Grab one of the ministers by the hand and say, I need to trust Jesus as my Christ. Maybe you're here today and you're a Christian. But maybe, maybe you've got a burden that you're carrying that is so heavy. I want you to know the altar's open for you. This Christ can take care of it. He can lighten your load. Maybe you're here today and you've been visiting for a while and you've been waiting for the right time to join the church. Today would be a great time to join the church. As the Spirit of God leads, you respond in obedience. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation and we pray that we as your people will always and forever make much of you. We can't lift you too high. You're in a class all by yourself. So Lord Jesus, we love you. Have your way in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen.